Prodigal Church was getting ready to have our first birthday and we grew pretty fast as a church and we were in need of some help so we hired someone from within our church that I knew but I didn't really know. Her name was Corey Lee Duncan and she has been on staff with us since 2018. Uh, I'm pretty sure that what she has been doing the past several years is vastly different than her original job description and it has been so great having Corey on our team. She has brought wisdom, insight, creativity, humor, and honesty to our staff and to our church. Next Sunday is Corey's last Sunday on staff, and she's simply wanting to spend more time at home with her family, with her girls, and we're really excited for her. She'll still be around. You'll probably still see her on the screens occasionally. And uh, Corey, it's very fitting that your last Sunday, the last four weeks here at Prodigal, are during a series focused in on the God-given strength and ability of women in leadership because you have been an incredible leader in your home, and in our church. You'll be missed at our weekly staff meetings and our 5 a.m. Sunday morning setup time. You are welcome to come and volunteer at 5 a.m. any Sunday that you would like, okay? That gift is just, it's on the table. Just throwing it out there. Welcome to week three of our sermon series, Her, The Power, Influence, and Impact of Women in Scripture. And here is the main focus of this entire sermon series. Jesus and the Bible lead to the elevation of women as full equals with men and their role in the home, in the church, and in society should be defined not by gender, but by gifting. And I think that this is a given, but I just want to make sure that I say it. There is absolutely nothing wrong with being a wife and a mother. Nothing wrong with being a stay-at-home mom. Sarah is a stay-at-home mom. It's not against doing something. It's about doing what God calls you to do. Don't limit what works best for you and your family. And I also want to reiterate that I acknowledge that men and women are different. There are gender differences. I don't think it's controversial to say that there are certain characteristics and tendencies that are true regarding the majority of women. And as I think that there are certain characteristics and tendencies that are true regarding the majority of men. But not all women are the same and not all men are the same. And prescribing rigid gender roles by saying that all men are leaders and that women are submissive followers is surely ignoring the fact that some men have little to no leadership ability and some women are incredible leaders. But aren't men supposed to be the head of the household? Isn't that what the Bible teaches? Actually, no. The phrase headship or head of the household appears nowhere in the Bible. So where does it come from? Well, it does come from Paul's instructions to Christian households in Ephesus and in Corinth. And we're going to look at some of those passages carefully together. But first, it's important to understand some Greek. Okay, the New Testament was originally written in Greek and there are nuances in that language that don't quite translate into our language. The two Greek words for head are archon and kephale. Archon means like head of an army or leader or command, ruler, authority. 
uh, kafale is head of the river, head of our body, uh, source. Now, if Paul's point is to relay hierarchy and to say who is in charge, the word to be used would be archon. Guess what word Paul uses when he speaks of the husbands being the head of the wife? Kafale. First Corinthians 11. Paul writes this, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. The Greek word for head here is kephal. I don't think Paul's focus here is hierarchy. Not only because he doesn't use the word archon, which would be the obvious choice, but because of the order in which he lists them. Head of every man is Christ, head of every woman is man, head of Christ is God. That's not the order it should go, right? If it's chain of command, if chain of command is the heart of what Paul is trying to say, it should go head of every woman is man, head of every man is Christ, head of Christ is God. Paul deliberately mixed up the order so that it wouldn't have the connotation of chain of command, of hierarchy. Now, there is a whole lot more to be talked about and said about 1 Corinthians chapter 11, perhaps on another Sunday, but even here, where it plainly speaks of men as the head, it doesn't mean what we think it means. It doesn't mean authority over women. Now, I didn't always know this. I said in week one that this sermon series is a confession and a profession, a confession that I too am learning and growing and my understanding of some of these instructions has changed over the years. Opinions should change over the years. It's called growth. It's called maturity. And marriage forces us to grow. I have been married to Sarah for almost 17 years. And the first year was constant learning. We both had never lived with anyone else, and so just basic being in the same house kind of things was a huge learning curve. I remember one moment very early on in our marriage when Sarah was trying on new jeans in our bedroom, and then she did a move. This move is called the owl. The owl is when a woman is trying on clothes and then backs up to a mirror and contorts her head like an owl searching for a mouse in the night. Okay, something like this. And you gotta be on your tiptoes. Now, the owl has a question. And the question is not, who? Who? The question the owl asks is, are these pants too tight? And church, this is a loaded question. And my 20-something self didn't really know how to respond because in reality, they may have been a little too tight. I don't remember. So she says, are these pants too tight? In my response, two words, kind of, kind of. Then I see the look on her face and I mean, no, 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 they're not too tight, they're just, they're just full. No, no, that's not what I meant either. <sighs> that led to a lot of tears that night. Okay? In fact, my wife almost cried as well. Now I have learned a ton in my marriage. I don't make the same ridiculous mistakes that I made 
when we were first married. And God has grown Sarah and I together. There are innumerable ways and things that we see differently now than when we were first married. We are different people than we used to be. We're different church leaders than we used to be. We are different Christ followers than we used to be. And so much of it is from this mutual submission to one another. There's that word. Whenever churches and Christians start talking about marriage, the S word is bound to get brought up. The S word is submission. Let's look at where that word comes from in Ephesians chapter 5. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands throughout the centuries have quoted and misquoted these verses as a way of silencing women to do whatever they wanted. And the consequences of this twisting has been devastating. And if I am a woman reading this scripture, I'm slamming it shut and saying that this ancient book is out of date, end of story. But that is not what the passage of scripture is leading us towards. Wives submit. That is not where the section of Christian marriage begins. Rather, look at verse 21. Paul writes this right before. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives are called to do something that every Christian is called to do. And husbands are being called to something that every Christian is called to do. Paul is not only telling the wives to submit, he's telling both partners to submit. There is this mutual submission in marriage. Wait a minute. Are you just trying to soften the Bible? You don't like what the Bible says, so you're kind of softening it a little bit. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. So is the husband the head of the wife? Yes, it's plainly clear in scripture. But by saying that, I may have said something that is misleading. Because in English, when we use the word head, we think of it as a metaphor, as authority over. Remember our Greek lesson from earlier on. Kephale doesn't have anything to do with authority over, at least in the first century usage. Head means the top of your body, but it also has metaphorical usage, right? When we talk about the head of the company or the head of the team or the head of the army, we're usually talking about the one who has authority over. It wasn't used that way in the first century. In fact, there are first century ancient writings about the head of the army referring to battles. And who is the head of the army? Well, it's not the generals and the commanders who are comfortably sitting in their chariots bossing everyone else around. No, in the first century, the head of the army was the first soldier to die. The one who leads the charge and the one who is most likely to lay his life down. He probably would not survive, but he's brave and he moves forward first. That's the head of the army. 
This is a vastly different use of the metaphor head, right? He, he lays his life down for a cause. He doesn't boss people around. So when the Bible says the husband is the head of the wife, well, we in the Western church say, aha, I'm the husband. I'm in charge of the home. Wife, submit to me, almighty husband. Well, that is us reading our Western bias into the scriptures. The husband is the one who lays his life down in sacrificial love for his wife, just like Jesus does. The scripture goes on to say how Jesus laid his life down for the church, how, not how he took charge of the situation. That's what headship means in the first century. And doesn't this passage of scripture make so much more sense in understanding the first century headship mob motif? Verse 21 tells us that all Christians are to submit. All Christians are to love, obviously. That's stated throughout the scriptures. But here specifically, wives are called to submit and, wives are, and husbands are called to love. Well, that sounds so much easier, right? Husbands, they get off the hook. You're called to love your wife. Duh, of course you're gonna love your wife. Wives, they have to submit. That sounds much more difficult. Actually, love is harder. Again, there's a mutual submission here. Love, ultimately, it means laying down of power. Philippians chapter 2 tells us how Jesus does this. He empties himself of that power and authority. Why aren't women told to love here? Well, in the first century, women didn't have any power to lay down. And we husbands are called to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We are to lead the way in sacrificial love, not just any kind of love, agape love, selfless love. Not to serve our own desires, but to bless and serve our wives. That is the main thrust of the passage. It doesn't say, my wife has no say-so. No, Sarah is my other half. I'd be missing out on so much. How can I not listen to her? She's usually right. In Christian marriage, it's not about living for yourself. It's about dying to yourself. I don't know where we got the idea that in Christianity, Jesus is the only one who does the dying. No. There is no other relationship in the world that better demonstrates our need to die to ourselves than in Christian marriage. And husbands should be the first to do so. Marriage is difficult. It is much easier to try and convince my wife to die to herself so that I can get what I want. But that's not what love does. Love is this Christ-centered choice to relate to my wife with unsurpassable worth. Christian marriage isn't when a quiet, submissive wife bites her tongue and does her husband's bidding. No, Christian marriages, it's, it's when both submit to one another and the husband leads the way in sacrificial love for his family. That's Christian marriage. But someone has to break the tie, right? If there's a disagreement about a decision that needs to be made and it is gridlocked, someone's gotta be the tiebreaker. And that's the man, right? He's the leader. Survey was taken of 20,000 Christian women and they were asked about marriage. And most believed in some kind of hierarchy that the man should make the final decision. That if they disagree, that the final say-so goes to him. But then the follow-up question was, what do you actually do 
when making decisions. And everybody said they make decisions together. So couples might believe that the man should make the final decision, be the final decision maker, but it's actually not what couples do. And here are some disturbing figures. Here's where it goes sideways. When people not only believe it, but then they practice it. They practice that the man makes the final decision or that the, he is the primary decision maker in the relationship. Even if he cults, consults with his wife first, the divorce rate increases 7.4 times. Let me say it in a different way. You are almost eight times more likely to get a divorce when the husband is the primary and final decision maker. Marriage expert John Gottman shows similar results in a different study. His conclusion, men who don't share power with their wife are 81% more likely to get divorced. The reality is, if you go into marriage as full equals, you are more likely to have a healthy and successful relationship than if you were to go into marriage thinking he's in charge. Nobody's divorcing because there's no one to break a tie when a couple doesn't agree. So what do you do as a couple if you don't agree on a specific decision? You're gridlocked. I don't know. You just work it out. You just keep talking through it. You just keep praying through it, wrestling with it. Never once in my 17 years of marriage have either Sarah or I made the sole decision for our family. We've always made the decision together. And we have made some big decisions where we didn't always see things the same way at the beginning, but we figured it out together. If Sarah would have said, well, John, you're the husband, let's do it your way. Neither of us would have felt good about that. It is not a victory that the husband makes the decision by himself because you can't come to a decision together. That is a failure. Seek God, seek wise counsel, keep talking, keep praying, keep listening. Most people, when they love each other and they respect each other, they decide, I'm not gonna make a unilateral decision without you because you matter to me and we're going to do this together. Maybe that's what God wants for you, is to struggle through conflict together. And by short-circuiting the process, saying, well, it's the husband's decision, you are stunting the growth of working through difficult things together, conflict and disagreement and struggling through that, it actually brings you closer together. Maybe your lack of agreement is God's grace to you so that you can seek him together. It will make you better at resolving conflict in the future. And that's what marriage is about. Now, I want to make sure that I say this and I want to make sure I say it clearly. Lots of Christians disagree with me on women's roles in the home, in the church, and in society. And they love Jesus too. It is okay to disagree on how to interpret scripture. Because we disagree on some things, doesn't mean we disagree on everything and can't extend grace towards one another. Amen? Galatians 5, 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, nor slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus.
Welcome to week three of Her, The Power, Impact, and Influence of Women in Scripture. Throughout this series, we'll be sharing stories and experiences of amazing women in our church. Each story is different, but connected in our experience as women using our gifts to build the body of Christ. Here's Emily Moorhead. Justin and I have been married for 19 years. We met in college, we were best friends, and we were just really excited to serve God together with our marriage. Um, I wanted to do everything right, so I started reading all the popular Christian marriage books, and the message was really consistent, which was the man is the head, the wife is the helper, and it's her job to submit to his authority. They said this was God's design for marriage, and they had the Bible verses to back it up. Um, women raising concerns to their husband was usually framed as nagging or controlling. The overall impression I got was that my needs and desires were inherently less important than my husband's um, and that I should minimize my needs as much as possible so that he would be free to pursue what God had for his life. Even though we had a happy marriage, after 15 years I started to uh, feel like something was wrong. I would feel guilty and anxious if something went wrong at home because I was supposed to be the helper and make sure that everything went really smoothly for Justin. I would hesitate to ask for help even though we had four young sons at that point because I felt that my role was primarily to serve and I was just deeply afraid that if I, if my needs inconvenienced anybody else um, that that was a big problem and that I would no longer be loved. As I started to learn that there were other ways of looking at Christian marriage, um, I talked to Justin about it and he told me that he had never really bought into the whole the man is the head idea. But because I had completely bought into it, um, unfortunately when we would disagree, a lot of times I would defer just because I was the wife. And because of that, we missed out on a lot of the growth and intimacy that comes from wrestling through difficult things with your spouse. And we both knew we wanted that and so we decided we were gonna stop trying to do the roles and the stereotypes and just use the strengths that God had given us um, as individuals and try to work together. Around the same time, um, we also found out that several women in our personal circle that were some of them married to pastors and Christian leaders were in emotionally abusive marriages. And just seeing how that teaching of women's submission kept them silent for a long time was really hard. and. Just combined with the hurt that I experienced, even in the midst of a good marriage, uh, made me want to speak up. The church that we were in at the time only had male teaching pastors and elders, and sometimes they were saying things from the pulpit that were not really sensitive to women who could be in difficult situations. So Justin and I wrote to the elder board, raising our concerns, and we really believed that they cared, and if they knew that what they were saying was hurting people that they would want to change. And so it was just, it was really devastating when they told us that we were seeing problems that weren't there because of our preconceived ideas about women's equality. And um, they told us that we could stay at the church, but that they wouldn't let us mentor uh, newlyweds anymore. It was really hard, that was a ministry that we loved. And it was just really surreal because we felt like all those pastors and leaders had really wanted what was best, especially for me as a woman. I thought they were teaching us these things because they believed that was God's best. And then to see them protecting the status quo instead of caring for people who were hurting was really painful. 
And now that I have a daughter, I just don't ever want her to doubt that her voice is valued and important. Over the last few years, Justin and I have had to relearn um, how to relate to each other in our marriage, and it's been really hard at times, but it's so much more real now. Um, I feel so much safer because I know that our marriage doesn't depend on me performing a role perfectly, but that I can just be myself, and I can disagree, and I can make mistakes, and still be loved. And that just feels so much more like Jesus.